You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. FireEye offers a summary of current Iranian cyber capabilities. The GAO warns that the Census Bureau still has some cybersecurity work to do before this year's count. Researchers call mobile voting into question. And some observations about why some extortion brings in a bigger haul than its rivals. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, February 20th, 2020. Researchers and security firm Cyber Reasons say that hackers associated with Hamas have been fishing rivals in the Palestinian Authority. The lure is an attached PDF that carries a backdoor installer. There are two distinct campaigns in progress. The first deploys the Spark backdoor, a known threat in the past year. The other installs a previously unremarked backdoor that Cyber Reason calls Pierogi. The campaign shows certain similarities with those run by the Mole Rats since 2012. The fish bait was mostly topical news of interest to the region, including stories about U.S. peace plans and the U.S. drone strike that killed the Iranian Quds Force commander, Major General Soleimani. The targets appeared for the most part to be Fatah leaders, Fatah is the principal rival of Hamas in the Palestinian territories. While Cyber Reason stops short of calling the hacking a Hamas operation, they do draw attention to the similarities with Molrat's style, and they do point to the loose affiliation of hackers that have been called the Gaza Cyber Gang, and which other researchers, CyberScoop points out, have linked to Hamas. Cyber Reason's assessment of the quality of the campaigns is that they show considerable thought and ability— the attackers have learned from past mistakes, and they've shown a sophisticated ability to use both homegrown and purchase tools. With the U.S. and Iran on mutually high alert in cyberspace, FireEye provides an overview of Iranian cyber capabilities. If you're interested in the current state of APT-33, also known as Refined Kitten, Magnalium and Holmium, or APT-34, that is Helix Kitten, APT-35, or Rocket Kitten, APT-39, Chafer, or any of Tehran's other operators, check out their podcast. They cover attacks, influence operations, and mitigations. A U.S. Government Accountability Office assessment warns about aspects of the Census Bureau's preparation for the 2020 U.S. Census. While the GAO found the Bureau to be working toward an effective count, their study also found that the Census Bureau was having difficulty meeting milestones for IT testing and cybersecurity assessment. The GAO would like to see the Census Bureau implement the cybersecurity recommendations it's received from the Department of Homeland Security over the past two years. Of particular concern are the possible vulnerabilities of the census to both hacking and disinformation. 
Federal News Network reports that these worries have prompted concerns in the U.S. House of Representatives that the census could prove to become the Iowa Democratic Caucus writ large. Some of those concerns are probably overwrought. For example, the Census Bureau told Congress that it's satisfied that the multiple cloud backups it's arranged lend its sufficient resilience to recover from an attack that affected the data it collects. And the Bureau has certainly devoted far more time and attention to development, testing, and deployment than the Iowa Democratic Party was able to bring to Shadow's Iowa Reporter app. Nevertheless, Congress and the GAO seem likely to keep a close eye on the 2020 census. CCPA, the California Consumer Privacy Act, went into effect earlier this year, and much like GDPR before it extended beyond the EU, you don't have to be physically located in California to be subject to CCPA. Darren Van Boeven is lead principal consultant at Trustwave. So right now, uh, the operative date for CCPA was January 1st of this year. However, the latest amendment to CCPA gave the California Attorney General an extension to provide uh, implementation guidance or implementation specifications on CCPA, uh, extended that deadline to uh, July 1st, I believe it is, or the end of June. So we have this uh, six-month period of time where we have the the regulation uh, in place as an operative date, so technically that is the law of the land. However, the Attorney General, at least at this point in time, has released some draft implementing regulations. However, uh, it's still going through a public comment period, and those have not yet been finalized. Attorney General has until the end of June to release the final regulations or the final implementing regulations, but we don't know for sure between now and then when those uh, will occur. So what sort of recommendations are you making in terms of companies making sure that when things really go into effect and, and start rolling uh, that they're going to be ready. What I do when looking at compliance and requirements and regulations, I break it down into bite-sized chunks and then work backwards from there. If uh, an organization has to delete, for example, any personal information upon requests going back the last 12 months, there are several things behind that requirement. One is, do you know where all of your, your data sets are? I start there because that's something that a lot of organizations don't have a good handle on. Are you able to identify where the data is that you're collecting, be able to identify the specific data sets that apply? And if you are able to do that, how do you know that when you receive the request to delete the data, that the data is actually all deleted? How do you know the answers to those questions? And so kind of from start to finish on that one, When the request comes in, you have to be able to validate the identity of the individual requesting the deletion. And so there are some requirements around that. How do you do that? Uh, How do you identify the data sets? How do you make sure that they're deleted and whatnot? And same thing when it comes to just management of the data, since organizations have to disclose the categories of, of information, business purpose, all that good stuff about California Consumer data, how do you know that you are disclosing all of the information? You have to have a good handle on the data flow within your organization. And so I I start there because that's the most complicated piece is the data management piece. Has uh, has California given any indications of, of how they're going to go about enforcing this, how, how hard they're going to come down on people who aren't meeting the regulations? 
That's a good question. And if we look at other requirements that have come out, not necessarily at the state level, but perhaps federal, the HIPAA privacy rule is an example of this, where when it first came out, there are requirements for privacy and there were stated fines and whatnot. It took a little bit of time for organizations, healthcare organizations to learn how the government is or HHS is going to uh, enforce HIPAA, how they're going to apply fines. And uh, I think the same thing is going to happen here is the actions that the attorney general takes when it comes to enforcement and the fines that get levied and under what circumstances are going to play out over time. Uh, When taking a look at this from a business perspective, I would err on the side of the attorney general being more stringent or more uh, strict when it comes to enforcement rather than less. That's always a safe assumption. And so uh, paying close attention to the attorney general's implementation guidance will be very key here, making sure that you capture all of those things so that if CCPA applies to you and let's say you experience a major breach of personal information that you're able to prove to the attorney general if uh, he or she, I guess at the moment it's a he, comes knocking on your door and asks you, hey, did you comply with CCPA before this breach happened, that you would be able to to demonstrate that. So I would definitely take the uh, enforcement seriously. And CCPA has some pretty uh, significant fines uh, called out in its verbiage for organizations that don't comply. So uh, the intent behind California lawmakers, I think, is is definitely for organizations to take this seriously. That's Darren Van Boeven from Trustwave. Researchers at MIT conclude that votes, that's V-O-A-T-Z, because of course it is, a mobile voting application that's been adopted by some U.S. counties and one state, West Virginia, especially for the purpose of collecting absentee ballots, is vulnerable to attackers wishing to alter, stop, or expose a user's vote. The researchers based their conclusions on reverse engineering of the application, They write, quote, We find that votes has vulnerabilities that allow different kinds of adversaries to alter, stop, or expose a user's vote, including a side-channel attack in which a completely passive network adversary can potentially recover a user's secret ballot. We additionally find that votes has a number of privacy issues stemming from their use of third-party services for crucial app functionality. Our findings serve as a concrete illustration of the common wisdom against Internet voting, and of the importance of transparency to the legitimacy of elections. Quote. The developers of the Votes app have strongly objected to the research, saying the MIT team used an old version of its product, an Android version that was at least 27 versions old. The MIT researchers, ZDNet reports, maintain that the version they used was still available on Google Play. In any case, Votes offered two other specific objections. The app the researchers used wasn't connected to the vote's servers, and had it attempted to do so, would have failed to pass identity and security checks. Finally, the researchers used a conjectured image of vote's servers and proceeded on the basis of false assumptions about the way the different components of the company's system interacted. And finally, IBM X-Force researchers have been looking into sextortion campaigns, and they found that Emotet spam has eclipsed Nikors in its intake of ransom. There are two reasons for this. Emotet tends to hit victims through their work email, whereas Nikors affected mostly webmail accounts. And Emotet users charge their victims in Bitcoin, not the less valuable Dashcoin favored by Nikors using hoods. 
Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Johannes Ulrich. He's the Dean of Research at the Sands Technology Institute, also the host of the ISC Stormcast podcast. Johannes, it's always great to have you back. Um, I wanted to touch today on some IoT threats. Uh, there's some things going on here folks should be aware of, and it goes beyond passwords. Right. Uh, you know, a lot of the uh, home IoT security sort of has focused on securing the devices themselves. And I guess you know it has sort of become a holiday tradition by now that... After you unwrap your devices, you set a strong password. Maybe you try to figure out how to patch them. But overall, the devices, yes, so there are a lot of problems with devices. We have seen and botnets like Mirai, so take advantage of them. But many of these home devices are behind firewalls and behind NAT. So that makes them a little bit more difficult to attack. A couple of years ago, I went to Home Depot and um, saw one of these cloud control thermostats. It was one of the sort of cheap Nest knockoffs. And you know, first I thought, hey, cloud control thermostat makes perfect sense. More clouds, I need less AC. Mm. Uh, but <laughs> that's uh, that's not really sort of how it worked. Yeah? Because these, these devices have the, the same problem with NAT and such. So when I'm on the road and I would you know, like to check on, on my thermostat, I'm not actually connecting directly to the thermostat. I'm connecting to some kind of cloud service. The thermostat is connecting to some cloud service. And you know, then we use that to sort of exchange messages. Or hmm. with cameras, you often have like these S-ton servers that are sort of used to for the 
mobile app and the camera to sort of meet up in some cloud servers. And then they negotiate how they can connect uh, directly to each other. And mm -hmm. lately, these cloud services have really sort of become a big target because First of all, as a user, you have less control over these cloud services. Yes, you can set up a password, but with my cloud control thermostat, uh, well, uh, it looked good. I had to set up a password to log in with the mobile app. I never had to enter the same password to my thermostat. And the thermostat doesn't even have a keyboard for that. Turns out the thermostat pretty much just used the serial number uh, to authenticate itself to that cloud service. Oh, interesting. So um, with cameras, of course, it has become a huge issue with like Ring lately and these cameras where attackers um, use just simple brute forcing of passwords uh, to connect to the cloud components of uh, these cameras and then we're able uh, to connect to the camera itself uh, via that. And it doesn't really matter what password you set up on on the camera itself. Well, of course, you have to secure your, your account too, but... Again, there's much less you can do about this, you know, with a ring, for example, uh, not protecting you very well against some of these brute forcing or eventual stuffing attempts. Uh, you can't really do anything about it or uh, not just a hit on ring. Another camera manufacturer is quite popular, Ubiquiti or Unified, they're also known under. What's actually nice about them is they rely less on cloud service in the sense that uh, you can buy a fairly cheap little device that you install in your house and um, they should call it cloud key. So all the data is stored on a device on your premises, which is nice. So you don't have any issues mm. with uh, your video footage being stored somewhere else. But you still have that problem of being having to connect to that uh, camera from the outside. So again, they have some S-TAN server in here to facilitate this. And lately, actually, for their wireless access points, they started sending performance data from the wireless access point to their cloud service. Now, you may want to block this. You, know, you may not necessarily want uh, things like you know, what SIDs you're using, how many devices you have and such uh, being reported back to them. Their advice was, well, just block the connection to the firewall. You can do that. You know? It sounded like a great idea, but once you do that, that little process they have running on the access point that tried to reach out to their cloud service actually sort of you know, went crazy and chewed up all <laughs> of the CPU uh, cycles on the access point. Uh, so that wasn't really a valid solution either. So a lot of these IoT devices have these components where they are reporting back to the cloud, but they're allowing access via a cloud service. And as a user, you have very little control over this. You may not even realize in many cases what data is, for example, being exfiltrated. And is this a situation of, of just sort of buyer beware that you need to do your homework before you purchase one of these to make sure you know what you're getting yourself into? Yes, it's definitely a buyer beware thing. And I always recommend that if you have a device like this, we just bought it, you realize some of these things just don't look right. Return it to the manufacturer. That's really, I think, the only thing that's going to change things here is if it costs them too much money to sell crap, then maybe they'll... They'll fix it and uh, sell a little bit better device and fix it on their back end. Hmm. All right, here's hoping. Johannes Ulrich, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. 
Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.